1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, I'm going to be in much of this chapter this hour, but uh, I won't read it to you on the front end. We read it at the beginning of the service, but I will allude to many of the verses here. This chapter in the Bible is a gospel chapter. It is documenting for us that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. It defines the gospel and emphasizes the resurrection of Christ and our resurrection as well. Look at the beginning of the chapter. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Look at verses 3 and 4. This is the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the creed statement of the gospel in our New Testaments. The death, the burial, and the resurrection. The gospel is a package deal. You can't just have the cross and the death of Christ without the burial and the resurrection of Christ to say that you have the gospel. You can't have just one component of it. And you can't take out any slat of the gospel and still have the gospel. It's all or nothing. Kind of like the Christian life. You are either all in or you're not really in at all, at least in terms of your heart. And this chapter is a chapter that's calling Christians to be all in for Jesus Christ. All in with the the full gospel and all in with your hearts for him. Even if it means dying, that's why Paul mentions and emphasizes the resurrection like he does. Because our hope is, even if we die, we will be raised again, just like Jesus has risen from the dead. That's a major theme here in this chapter. I was thinking about how oftentimes people will try to take a little piece of something out of something and it destroys the whole thing. Yesterday I was um, sort of embarking upon a handyman sort of thing that, yeah, if you know me, you know I'm really skilled with tools, right? No, not really. Obviously you don't know me very well. I'm not very skilled with tools. So I I go over to the closet to pull down my toolbox Well, it's kind of my wife, it's both of our toolbox. But anyway, because she's actually more skilled with, all right, I said it, tools than I am. Anyway, but so I'm going for the toolbox because I'm going to try to attempt to fix our garbage compactor. And I start to pull it down out of the shelf. And as soon as I pull it down, all these other tools and things in the closet begin to fall on top of me at the same time. Ever happen to any of you? I mean, you know, the clothes are falling down in the closet and the coat hangers on the ground and the, the bars on the, I mean, it's just a mess. And it was just a living illustration to me that if you take something that is sort of, sort of wound together and you try to take one component out of it, the rest will crumble down. It's kind of like that loose string in your sock or on your tie or in your sweater and you just, I can pull it, I can whip it off, right, and keep the whole thing together and all of a sudden it begins to pull apart. Because it's wound together. Well, that's how the gospel is. It's all or nothing. 
And there are people who attack the gospel even today in our church culture, just like it was sort of being challenged in this New Testament time. I was reading in a chapter of a book about the inaugural prayer for Barack Obama. It was January the 18th, 2009, and this Episcopal priest got up, this bishop got up, and he prayed, O God of our many understandings. That's the God he prayed to. And really, our nation should have been in an outrage because really what he was saying is that I'm praying to a God who is the God of all religions. And that's really not the God of the Bible. The God I serve is the God that's revealed here and revealed through his son, Jesus Christ, who said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. It's a narrow road. And oftentimes people want to widen the gospel or widen who we think God is so that he, ex- he spans over all religions. And really, there's only one way to God, and he is the Lord that's revealed in Scripture. There's also a, a guy that I've been reading on and thinking about quite a bit. He's an emergent postmodern pastor, preacher, writer. He's written a book that basically undoes the doctrine of hell, or at least he's trying to. And he's espousing that there is no hell because God is a God of love and he couldn't do something like that where people are ultimately left in hopelessness forever and ever. Something that that basically his pastor can't stomach and he's appealing to people to, to buy into this and he's undoing hell and he's saying ultimately hell on earth is people who have a bad attitude and are unwilling to see God as love. Hell and earth are the bad things that happen to us, and that's hell. That's not, there's no such thing really as an eternal hell. Well, what this pastor and preacher is doing is he's basically undoing the need for the cross. Because if you have no eternal hell, you don't need to be rescued from anything. You already have hope to repent at any time that you turn around. Even if you're condemned away from heaven, eventually you can turn around. That's what he is saying. And that's contrary to what the scripture teaches. And when you undo one part of the gospel, it begins to unravel the bigger pieces like Jesus' death on the cross and his sacrificial atonement that we must have if we're going to have hope to escape eternal hell. Which is just the Bible. That's why it's so simply put here in 1 Corinthians 15. You can't miss it. This is the gospel. Death, burial, resurrection. We need to own it and believe in it and believe in every facet of it. What Paul is pointing out here is that, listen, early church, you need to understand that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. And that is part and parcel to the gospel. And what this church was doing is they were beginning to buy into a false teaching where people were being taught that really one day our bodies are not going to physically be raised from the dead. Whether they believed that Jesus rose from the death bodily, dead bodily or not was sort of irrelevant because we're really just going to spiritually go up into the air one day and our bodies are never going to be raised again. And Paul is calling a major foul. And he's saying that is not true. Look at verse 12. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? 
What he's talking about is he's talking about the fact that just like Jesus was raised bodily and physically from the dead, you too are going to be raised from the dead. Your body, even if you fall asleep and die and go to heaven before this time, your body one day is going to be transformed and raised just like Jesus Christ was raised. So he's winding these two thoughts together. You got to have Jesus bodily raised and you got to believe that you're too, you too are going to be bodily raised. And there was a false teaching that was called dualism in this day saying that, look, there's really two parts of you. There's an evil side and a spiritual side. The spiritual side can be redeemed and brought into heaven. Your spirit can go to heaven, but your body is just corrupt and will never be redeemed. And Paul's going, no, 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 no. You are physically going to be redeemed as well. I mean, I I believe in a new heavens and a new earth, right? In heaven, we're going to physically eat and drink at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm going to be saying, pass the meat, pass the potatoes, pass the broiled fish, right? Didn't Jesus eat broiled fish when he was resurrected? Why did he do that? It's to prove that his physical body had been resurrected. And you know what? That's an example of what we too are going to experience and be like and enjoy in a physical heaven. Paul was very concerned that this church not go down a slippery slope of false teaching because it could ultimately begin to confuse the truth of Jesus' bodily resurrection. You've got to have it all as a package deal is what he's saying. And he makes four arguments here. He does. He's saying to deny part of the gospel denies all of the gospel. And he sort of takes that on by using a philosophical, logical argumentation that's called a reductio ad absurdum. In other words, what he does is he he talks about arguments as if he is buying into something that's not true and trying to prove something that's not true to show how absurd that position really is. Okay, It's the idea that he's going to talk as if he's believing that there's no resurrection and talk that way so that when you read about it, you go, no, there really is a resurrection for us and Jesus. It's just a way to talk about something as if it's absurd to prove the truth in our own hearts. That's what he's doing. Look at verse 13. The first point is that if you deny part of the gospel or you're denying gospel history, then you're denying all the gospel. Look at verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Saying, look, if you're not planning to be raised physically one day, guess what? Jesus historically was never physically raised. That's what he's saying. He's holding out the idea that Jesus was historically raised. It really did happen. Do you believe that? I mean, has, has your mindset about the resurrection moved from the flannel board of, of Sunday school to the conviction, the biblical conviction in your heart that it's true? Has that happened yet? Do you understand that Jesus was here 2,000 years ago and he historically, as a real-time event, rose from the dead? That's what, that's what Paul is trying to get the church to see. This has to be a matter of conviction. And if you begin to just sort of say that, hey, 
eh, I can take it or leave it whether or not I'm going to be raised from the dead, then you can also begin to become this skeptic and critic that ultimately begins to believe something that's not true. And you could undo for yourself one of the key components of the gospel, that Jesus, in fact, bodily rose from the dead. So do you believe that? Do you truly believe it? Not just head knowledge, not just storybook level, but actually in your heart believe that Jesus, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit raised out of that grave. That's what he's saying. Verse 13, you don't want to undo the gospel history. It actually happened. I was talking to my brother, who's a pastor down in Atlanta, and he had just gone on to a missions trip and into Asia Minor, and he was uh, preaching in some churches and teaching in a seminary out there, and kind of he was along the Adriatic Sea, and at one point he said he got to see a Colosseum that was built during the life and times of Jesus, and it's one of the fourth largest remaining ruins of a Colosseum that still exists, and it's about 45 feet high, three stories, I asked him about it, but what struck me in our conversation was when he said, man, when I was looking at that Colosseum, I just realized This was being built when Jesus was on earth doing his thing. I thought, I just like the way he said that because that's so real life, isn't it? Jesus was physically here as the God-man and he was healing, he was raising the dead, he was doing miracles and he was teaching, he was ministering and he ultimately was the sacrifice who died and rose again. And it was real time and it actually happened. He was really here when stuff was being built. I just thought that connection was powerful because my brother was seeing Jesus as a real person who was here. It's so easy sometimes, I think, to just look at the gospel story as just a story, just a powerful, inspiring story, just like watching a good movie where it kind of inspires you and then goes away. Instead of saying, no, I know I'm going to be raised because Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. So we don't want to undo the gospel history. Secondly, he's saying that to deny part of the gospel or to deny the resurrection is undoing the gospel's power. Look at verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, if Christ has not been raised... If you begin to undo that, then everything that you remember about when your heart and life was transformed, that's just you faking yourself out. That's what Paul is saying. Do you remember when you heard sermons that were grabbing your attention and your heart would beat and the adrenal gland would kick in and you would say, you know what, this is more than just a story time in the Bible. This is life and death for me, and I really do believe in an eternal heaven, an eternal hell. I really do believe that I have sins that need to be washed away, and the sermon power is getting through. Do you remember those experiences? You should. You should, because that's part of your testimony. Even if you don't know exactly when you became a Christian, that's part of the testimony of a Christian, where you sense in your spirit the power of the gospel, right? Well, Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then all of that experience, all of what you recall is just kind of a sham. You're just faking yourself out. The preaching was in vain. The preaching was empty. He mentions this word vain or vanity five different times throughout this text. And he's saying it's either all real or it's all just empty. So that was either real or it's not. 
But a person hearing that would naturally say, it was real. Jesus did change my heart. I know I'm a Christian. Do you ever think that way? You think, you know what? When I have my doubts, when I have my thoughts of whether or not I'm truly a believer, you remember when God transformed your heart. You remember those sermons that stirred your soul and you say, you know what? I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm not the same as I used to be. Well, thirdly, to deny part of the gospel, to begin to deny the resurrection is undoing the gospel's integrity. Look at verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified that God, about God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. So Paul here again is saying, listen, if we're going to sort of stand up this argument as if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then guess what? We as apostles are just big fakers. We just faked you all out. We're just sham preachers. And we completely misrepresented God. The word to misrepresent is the idea of pseudo-martyria. A martyr is a witness for Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, we were just fake witnesses for Christ. And our message was completely misrepresenting the true God if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Why? Because our main message is that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. He's that kind of God. And so we were either getting it right and representing the true and living God to you, or we were just faking you out. So which is it? And so that's the form of logic that he's using with the church to say, No, no, Paul, you represented God the right way. As the word of God represents God. Again, back to this postmodern preacher who's out there. I believe he's misrepresenting God when he exalts one attribute of God over against another. He's saying, look, God is love. He calls himself love. If he's this loving God, then he he can't send people to a place called hell forever. If he's this winning God who wins in the end, then, then he can't be a God who would condemn people forever. But see, the God of Scripture is called love, but he's also called thrice holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. He's the God of justice. He's the God of wrath. He's the God of power. And he's a God who is glorified at the great white throne judgment where he opens the books and says, I am judging certain ones according to their deeds, beginning with Satan and his angels cast into the lake of fire. And those who do not repent will follow him there for all of eternity where the worm doesn't die. John 5 talks about is where Jesus talks about how there is a resurrection of life and a resurrection of of death. People at the great white throne judgment are raised for the second death where they are going to be punished and are punished for all of eternity. The reason why we love the resurrection so much is because we know all of this about God to be true. He is loving and he did provide a way for you to be saved, right? And we're saved from something. We're saved from our sins which God is just to condemn us for, but for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we're saved by God 
from his wrath because of his love, redeemed forever in heaven. Representing the true God is important. You can't pit God against God. You've got to have either all of God and all of who he is as the lion and as the lamb, or you don't have God. It's very important for you to understand that. And I just bring that up because I want to warn you. I don't really want to name names this morning, but there are people out there and there are books out there that are trying to lead people off the path. And they're, they, they're, they're dangling tainty morsels of, of questions to get people to question God and question Christianity and get you to be questioning God, as you've been taught from Scripture, to lead you down a path into criticism. And ultimately, out of criticism, you turn into a skeptic. And one day, your skepticism will lead you off the path into perhaps apostasy, where you don't have the true gospel anymore. I don't believe you can lose your salvation when you stand in grace. But look at verse 2 again. It says, you're being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And what Satan tries to do is he tries to use people to twist scripture. To use a little bit of the scripture to lead people off the path where they find themselves awakening to a vain faith. You know, think about it. This, this preacher who's out there, he's basically saying that really in the end, even if you were separated from God, you're not eternally separated from God. And so you always have a chance to come in. And one day everybody will come into heaven through Jesus Christ alone. That's the message of the book. I finished it last night. That's his false teaching message. Guess what that reminds me of? Genesis 3, 4, the first lie in the Bible. Satan in the garden. You shall not surely die when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You won't die. It's no problem here. We'll buy into half of what's going on of what God says, but not all of it. So he takes out that judgment piece, and that's a satanic lie. Number one, to deny part of the gospel is to deny the historical event of the resurrection. You're undoing that. Secondly, you're undoing the power of God's word that comes through the gospel. Thirdly, it's undoing the gospel's integrity, verse 15. And then fourthly, to deny part of the gospel is undoing the gospel's hope. You know what the resurrection is all about? It really boils down to one thing. It is our hope. When Jesus died on the cross... In John 19, verse 30, it says that he said to the world that was listening, die. it is finished. Jesus Christ, had, he had drunk the wrath of God, the cup of wrath, that earlier he had sweated great drops of blood in anticipation that he was going to have to drink the wrath of God, taking on all of the sin of the world upon himself and death dying, providing the sacrificial atonement that's the substitution for all who would believe. And he takes it upon himself. And what killed Jesus? Did blood loss kill Jesus? Did he, did he drown in his, in his own lungs from asphyxiation, not being able to breathe? Did he die of anaphylactic shock? How did he die? No, he said to Telestai, it is finished. And then he sent his spirit up to be with his father. Died on the cross. And then three days later, you know what the father said about this? He called his son forth to rise out of that tomb. 
in Romans 4, 25 says, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. You know what that is? That's where God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and he said, I heard you say it is finished and now I say, Amen. Amen. It's God's stamp of approval saying the resurrection is real, valid, and it's your cleansed status before God, signed, sealed, and delivered. You're not guilty. There is no condemnation status upon you. Your sin debt was nailed to the cross, as Colossians says. You were washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. There's a continual washing that goes on, 1 John 1, 7, where you have a cleansed status, where you, Romans 5, 1, stand in grace. You are not under condemnation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Guess what? You are robed in righteousness. And so Jesus said, It is finished on your behalf. And God the Father raised Jesus Christ out of that tomb and said, You are justified, body of Christ. Amen. It is finished. That's the cross. That's the hope of the resurrection. You know, we have this cross laid up on this pilaster. Perhaps we should have an empty grave on this one to show the gospel package in full symbolic form. It's our hope. Just as Jesus was raised, even if we die before the resurrection, we too have the hope that we will be raised like he was. Look at verse 17. In terms of our conscience, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. It's the idea that, look, Paul's saying, listen, if Jesus wasn't raised, then all of this sort of feeling that you have where your conscience is clear and you're okay, that's all a sham. You're really not out of condemnation. You're still under guilt, verse 17. You're still in your sins, verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Not only is your conscience undone, but also your comfort is undone. All your friends who died for the faith, they're all perishing in hell. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, don't mess with the resurrection because you're going to torture your conscience and you're going to torture your comfort. Our hope, like 1 Thessalonians 3 and 4, is that we're going to see those who have died and gone before us because of one thing. Because of the resurrection. We're going to still know each other in heaven. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how we're going to be raised in heavenly bodies. We're going to look different in some ways than we did before. But I think just as the disciples knew who Jesus was, once he revealed himself to them, we'll be able to reveal reveal ourselves to each other in heaven. Just like was kind of prefigured at the Mount of Transfiguration. You have Moses and Elijah who are identifiable in that heavenly moment. We'll be able to identify ourselves. And we don't want that comfort to be taken away. So it, it just further is upon us to square up the gospel in our minds and not give any part of it away to anybody because it helps our conscience and it comforts our hearts. Just like the Hebrews 11 passage that it talks about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Rahab, Sarah. These are men and women that are forever 
documented in Scripture as men and women of faith that we're supposed to see in heaven. It's the same hope. You know, I was looking down um, in the chapter of verse, at verse 28 and 29 where Paul is talking about how people were baptized for the dead, a very sort of confusing um, verse in Scripture that people sometimes don't really understand. This right here is not Paul talking about people being involved in some kind of pagan rite or pagan baptism. What Paul is saying here is that people that led you to Christ as a church, those people who were baptized were the example that now you have followed in and you yourself have followed Christ and you've been baptized too. So don't give up on the resurrection because you don't want all of that to go in vain. See, when you were baptized in the early church or in, if you're baptized today in certain regions that would be Muslim regions or, or other regions where it would be very dangerous for you to be a Christian, you're putting your life on the line when you publicly are baptized. And so what Paul is saying is, look, don't let your baptism go in vain. Don't drop any part of the gospel. Look at verse 30. He says, why are you in danger Why are we in danger every hour? In verse 31, he says, I die daily. In other words, Paul is saying, look, the gospel is all or nothing. You either believe in the resurrection and you you believe that the power of death is not power over you anymore, that the power of sin has been rendered useless in your life, or you don't. It's being bold for Christ. Look at verse 32 says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? He's talking about people being fed to lions. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just have this party life as Christians and take it kind of halfway seriously and not really be all in if we're going to give up on the resurrection. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 34, he says, wake up from your drunken stupor as, it, as is right and do not go, go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. You know what? You and I have the knowledge of God that we're going to be raised from the dead just as Jesus was. And if you skip down, look at verse 53. What was perishable is going to be imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Verse 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Think of Jesus' promise to Peter. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You know what that means? That means that death has no power to snuff out the church. Because as the church advances and as people are martyred and people are killed for the cause of Christ, that's a seed that's sown for further flourishing of the church and further advancement of the vineyard of God. And death did not snuff out the church. The church is still a worldwide movement that is on the move and nothing can shut it down. No program can prop it up to be a better thing and no murders or killing or killing off can destroy or snuff out what God is up to and what he's doing. So, again, verses 17 and 19 in terms of conscience. Our conscience is undone if we deny any part of the gospel. Our comfort is undone. And ultimately, verse 19, our confidence is undone if we deny the resurrection. He says, if in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying, look, if you are someone who has convinced yourself that you're in the faith, that your sins are forgiven, and that you're completely secure and okay in him, and then if it was all vain, if it was all a lie, and there really isn't a resurrection from the dead, then guess what? You're pitiful. We're the most pitiful people in the world because we are self-deceived. And you know what a Christian does when you hear that? You say, oh, Paul, we know better. We know that we too will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was raised. We know we're secure. We know our sins are forgiven. Our sins are thrown as far as the east is from the west. Our sins are buried into the deepest part of the sea. Our sins are atoned for. Do you believe that? We're not in a pitiful state because God has given us the conviction in our hearts that we are children of God. We are. We cry out, as Romans 8 says, to our Father saying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, because we know Him. This is eternal life, John 17, that I may know Him. We're like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. We want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings and the power of His resurrection. Do you have that resurrection hope this morning? You need to. It needs to come off the flannel board and it needs to be Bible verses in your heart where you have as a conviction that you too will be raised from the dead. Let's look at a couple applications as we close. Number one, are you resolved that Jesus in fact rose from the dead? Let me ask it this way. Do you feel those truths in your heart? Do you feel the truth of the resurrection in your heart? Not just this morning, but regularly. If you regularly feel the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus rose, I'm going to raise. Death has no power on me. Then your maladies, your hurts, your aches, your pains, your heartache, abuse, things you've gone through, guilt, unforgiveness, those things dissipate. Those things will go away from you if you feel the truth of the resurrection in your life. Change your outlook. Number two, is Christ's resurrection as important to you as Christ's death? It's a package deal. Not just the cross, but the empty tomb, the resurrection. It should be. You know what the resurrection does? Is it, it focuses you from looking at the gospel only in a historical way to looking at the gospel in terms of your future. You know, a lot of times we live for future things to happen to us in this life, but we're not living for the future of the resurrection. It's future grace. The gospel saved us, but the gospel points us towards the future grace where we will cross the finish line into heaven. Third, thirdly, do you substitute anything else for resurrection hope? I do. I have to confess, I do. Do you live a busy life where you sort of live for goals in the immediate? I do. Do you ever do, you ever do something like this? Substitute in, you know, your version of this, but where you say, look, if, if this one thing just would happen, then my life would be better. If, if this would just happen, if, if this person would just say these words or, or do this thing, then my life would be okay and filled with hope. You know, if, if, if this you know, sort of debt would be paid off, then I would be okay and I would be a whole person again. If, if this happened or that happened, you know, then I'm hopeful. Well, guess what? Resurrection hope should trump 
all other earthly hopes. If you're going to be free as a Christian, if you're going to have joy, I look, as soon as one crisis is solved, what happens? We either want to or one finds us and, and we, you know, we either want one or one comes to us. And it's like we're nursing a new crisis in our life and that becomes our God. Instead of saying, you know what? Bad things are going to happen in this life, but nothing can touch my resurrection hope. It's a purifying effect. If you look over in 1 John, if you'll kind of just indulge me, I've got to cite one verse, 1 John chapter 3. It's actually two verses. Here we go. Verse 2. Beloved, we are not, or we are God's children now, but what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Watch how sanctifying this is. When we look to Christ in future grace and we're waiting for his return, verse 3, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. You want a pure life? Focus on the resurrection. We need to be like the Apostle John who saw the apocalyptic movie of what's going to happen to our world and the destruction therein. And then the new heavens and the new earth that will be created. Paradise lost and paradise regained. And what does John say at the very end? Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. I'm looking for the resurrection. That's a purifying way to think. Transform your life. Number four, are you ready to be all in for Christ? Dying to the world, looking to the resurrection. You know what? The resurrection puts the slats back into your life. The gospel is all wound together as one creed statement. Death, burial, and resurrection. And when you are all in with the gospel, when you aren't taking slats out of your own life in terms of your commitment, and you're all in and you say, you know what, I want to know him, the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection, that's when you fly as a Christian. That's when your boldness ramps up and that's where your joy ramps up in this life. And in the life to come. And that's when your life is attractive for others. When they see Jesus in you and they want what you have. And that's what we want for our world. We want to look for Jesus' return and we want to take as many people with us as possibly we can. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this resurrection morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for verse 20 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is our hope. There is perhaps no greater centerpiece verse in all of Scripture regarding your resurrection than this one. When Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. All of Paul's sort of straw man arguments fall down under the truth That in fact, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. We know it. It's resolved in our hearts. He's the first fruits of it. He went and we're going to follow. Lord, thank you that you have a room prepared for us in heaven for us to enjoy forever and ever with you, being raised with you. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here who does not have it resolved in his or her heart that you have raised from the dead, 
if they have not yet confessed with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believed in their hearts that you, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead to be saved, I pray that they would be saved. I pray that you would draw many to yourself. Lord, many that we would talk to and many that are under the hearing of my voice, that you would transform them, that you would take them out of their state of stupor, out of their sort of blindness, and that you would open their eyes, that you would take the blindfold off, and that they would see Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, through the eyes of faith for the first time and see him as more precious than anything that this world could offer, more satisfying than anything else this world dangles in front of us. We thank you for the truth of your word. I pray that if any of us here as Christians are sleeping at the wheel, just driving down the road but fast asleep, that you would awaken them this morning, that they too would be all in for Jesus Christ and his sake and for his glory. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen.